Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Doesn't it seem like we're in a strange time in history involving the use of service animals and emotional support animals? And what I mean is so many people want a non-human animal to accompany them wherever they go and to provide a whole host of alleged positive benefits. The regulatory system is completely in flux. People are abusing their privileges. There are fake service vests and definitely the system is being abused by people who just want to take their mini dog or whatever they have into restaurants and on planes and really anywhere. There was even a story in the news last year, and we talked about this on the show, of a woman who brought her emotional support pig onto an airliner. Well, that didn't last too long. Unfortunately, the pig and the pig's owner were escorted off the plane before it took off. But let's get real. What is the current status of service and emotional support animals, and which professionals should be permitted to issue permits for their use? I want to welcome Dr. Jeffrey Youngren, clinical and forensic psychologist at the University of Missouri. Welcome to the program, Dr. Youngren. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Jeff, define emotional support animals and contrast that to service animals. Well, under the law, they're distinctly different. Um, Let's start with the service animal. Service animal almost always has to be a dog. There are some cases where uh, a horse, a miniature horse has been certified, but a service animal has to be a dog. It's not a pet, and it must be formally trained to provide a function. Uh, and as, as, uh, when an animal is certified as a service animal, it really has full access with the owner to various places because it's necessary to address the disability. An emotional support animal is an interesting uh, creature under the law. The Department of Transportation and uh, the uh, Fair Housing Act individuals have defined this as an animal that is needed by the owner to ameliorate, for lack of a better term, a formal psychological disability. So uh, the the animal is uh, the presence of the animal is necessary to help the owner with whatever the emotional struggles. Uh, that individual is having. Uh, Under Department of Transportation, the animal flies with the owner, and under the Housing Act, uh, the animal uh, can be present in the the housing and, and actually can be present without any fees attached to it for damages for the animal. What certifications, if any, are currently needed to use service animals or emotional support animals? Our focus really is on the emotional support animal, uh, and uh, we really began our research kind of trying to get an understanding of this industry that sprung up uh, certifying these animals. And when we analyzed the law, it became clear to us that uh, these need to be formal disability determinations to uh, uh, help the individual with their emotional problem, and the animal is supposed to be able to do that. It's just problematic for two reasons, one of which is the research that we know, uh, or the research that exists uh, for emotional support animals is spotty in terms of whether they really do anything. It doesn't mean that someone doesn't enjoy being with their pet. Of course, you know, I, I enjoyed my dog and I enjoyed being with my animal. That's not it. The, the research doesn't really support clearly that the animal does do something with the, the psychological disability that has to be diagnosed by the individual providing the certification. 
so the certification really basically is a disability determination that says that the individual needs the animal. What rules govern the use of emotional support animals in places such as planes, restaurants, and classrooms? Actually, the rules do not apply to restaurants or classrooms. The emotional support animal rules apply to transportation and housing. Uh, So because someone has a certification for an emotional support animal doesn't mean they're allowed to go into public places that animals aren't allowed in or restaurants. It's a a significant misinterpretation of the law. But, of course, the people in the restaurants and and the teachers, they don't know what the law is. Uh, So individuals actually misuse the certification. It's very clear the certification is limited to transportation and housing. And in the housing, the animal needs to be in the housing. It doesn't mean they have access to the recreation room in the in the apartment or any other area in the apartment. They are limited to the owner's uh, apartment. Uh, and so it it, uh, it becomes a real problem when people are taking these animals into a variety of uh, settings that really the law doesn't uh, doesn't allow them to go into. Now, there's a review committee to evaluate the Department of Transportation regulations, I believe, scheduled for next week. Can you explain what that is and what happens there? Yes, the airlines have really been burdened with these uh, animals traveling uh, and have been uh, struggling with uh, spiders and snakes and potbelly pigs and ducks and turkeys that have all been certified as emotional support animals. So this has kind of catalyzed uh, a review of the Department of Transportation regulations uh, regarding this. And uh, there is a suggested proposal that these be revised to narrow down the definitions of emotional support animals and, frankly, to end the abuse of this. There are many companies that do disability determinations online. I believe that's a standards of care violation on how you evaluate someone's psychological disability in the form of a questionnaire in the first place. But lots and lots of these certifications exist and the airlines are burdened with it, and that has kind of forced a a formal review of the regulations, which will not change. They'll come up for comment and probably won't change until next year if they change at all. Now, you and your colleagues expressed an opinion as to who should write authorizations for emotional support animals, and I think our listeners would find it interesting that you feel that treating psychologists should not be writing them. Please explain. Sure, I'm happy to do that. It's because the writing of the letter has nothing to do with therapy. And therapy is a relationship of advocacy and treatment. Therapists are very much an advocate for for their patients. And uh, this creates a kind of a boundary crossing where you're engaging in a certification, uh, uh, providing a service to the client that really is one forensic and administrative in nature, and two, could potentially become a problem in the therapy. We suggest that treating therapists just tell their patients that we don't, I don't write those letters and you need to get that written by someone who will do a formal evaluation, which is a complex procedure uh, to, to determine whether it is appropriate for you to be with the animal or not. Um, so we believe that it is a boundary crossing. We believe that it raises ethical questions about whether the therapist should even be doing this. And we also believe that most of the treating therapists have never really done the disability evaluation that is required uh, for the determination. What can we anticipate next in this area? 
I think we're going to see uh, a clearer definition of what is required for uh, an emotional support animal to travel and be in housing. I think there are people who undoubtedly do need these animals. We don't really know who that is from an empirical perspective, but I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm, I am sure that there is a population of individuals who have emotional struggles, and they find that the presence of the animal ameliorates that or addresses those troubles. Fine, those individuals probably need that but everybody else that just wants to travel with their dog or you know is seeing a therapist that wants certification I think we're going to see an end to that Um, and we're going to see an end to the burden on the airlines of probably transporting transporting excuse me unusual pets like well as I went down the list we know spiders ducks turkeys snakes pot-bellied pigs and we, these have all been certified formally by a mental health professional <laughs> as emotional support animals, and they raise all kinds of questions about other passengers' rights um, to be uh, around that and, uh, and so forth. So I think we will see a clear definition of what is required for the certification and a narrowing of the group of individuals who will qualify for that. Very interesting topic. Forensic psychologist, Dr. Jeffrey Younger, and thank you very, very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you. I want to tell you, I did a little research to see how easy it might be to get your dog or cat or whatever animal you might have to be certified as an emotional support animal. And I'll tell you, it's pretty darn easy. But before I go into that, I think a lot of people incorrectly use the term service animal when they're referring to an emotional support animal. Okay, so I know Dr. Youngren explained the difference, but I'll just remind us of what each of these are. Okay, service animal helps perform some function for a person who has some disability right like a visual impairment or a hearing impairment or a seizures an emotional support animal provides comfort for individuals with emotional problems example someone with anxiety or depression or has panic attacks so I went online I could have spent 10 minutes filling out a form and paying as little as $69 and I would have been able to get a lifetime registration and a certificate and an ID card for any one of my dogs to be certified as an emotional support dog or service dog Now, you really do need a doctor's note to, quote, legally have an emotional support dog, but you don't need to submit that online in order to register your dog and get your ID kit or vest or card or whatever. You can get your therapist to write you a note because to go on a plane with your dog or go into a housing complex that says no dogs allowed with your dog, the airlines or the landlord will probably want to see a note from a therapist. But guess what? If your therapist won't write you a note or you don't have a therapist, you can get a licensed psychotherapist online to write you one for a small fee. For example, one of these websites states, in part, our licensed mental health professionals have written hundreds of prescriptive letters and we're proud to say that none of our clients have ever had an accommodation refused. If the therapist determines that that you qualify for an emotional support animal prescriptive letter, it will be emailed to you that same day. We are so confident the prescriptive letter you receive will be accepted by any domestic airline, landlord, or housing management agent. Your fee will be refunded in full if your requested accommodation is denied. Now, we've got to take a break, but let me give you something to think about here. So say I claim to have a fear of flying, which, by the way, I do hate to fly. By paying a relatively small fee, I can get one of my cats certified as an emotional support cat, bring them with me next time I fly, sit next to a person who might be very allergic to cats, but that doesn't matter. 
as long as I am now at ease and comforted by my emotional support cat on my lap, that's what matters. And it doesn't matter that the person next to me could potentially be suffering and uncomfortable, sneezing, coughing, choking, watering eyes, the entire flight by me and my cat sitting next to him or her. Wouldn't you think that person has rights? Interesting, huh? And yet, I'm strip searched to make sure I don't bring a bag of peanuts on the plane because someone 10 rows back might be allergic to peanuts. And one of my peanuts might accidentally fall out of my bag and land into the person's mouth. Welcome back to Animals Today. You know, a few months ago, we received a pet product sample manufactured from hemp. And although we did not give it to anyone to try, it was supposed to be non-psychoactive, having only trace amounts of THC, but providing cannabinoids, terpenes, and flavonoids, which supposedly have some health benefits. Truly, we were pretty skeptical. So we wanted to find out if there are any possible health benefits for dogs and cats from hemp. But there's possibly a more pressing concern in this area, and that is the accidental ingestion of medical marijuana and THC products by dogs. Welcome, Robert Reed, Medical Director, VCA Rancho Mirage. Hey, Robert. Hi, Lori. Nice to be back. Thanks. Let's start with ingestion of marijuana and related THC-containing products. There's more of it around with medical marijuana and legalized marijuana in some states like Washington, Colorado. We are seeing more cases of marijuana toxicity, or I should say intoxication in dogs, aren't we? Oh, definitely, yes. It's become a, a much bigger concern. Are these cases mostly unintentional, and how do they usually occur? I think they are usually unintentional. The, you know, there are a wider array of products available that people may have in their homes for legitimate reasons that pets can be exposed to, and, and some of them are actually edible and intended to be edible, uh, that may be attractive to dogs, particularly, rarely cats. We do occasionally have a malicious poisoning with marijuana, but it's almost always inadvertent. And what does marijuana and THC do to the animals? Well, you know, uh, marijuana has a lot of different effects on people and, and, and dogs. And unfortunately, nearly all of the information we have on marijuana dogs relates to toxicity. There's, there's virtually nothing available to guide us on any medical use of marijuana in dogs, and it's strongly discouraged uh, because there just isn't any information to guide us. But in terms of toxicity, the most common things that you might see in a dog that's affected by marijuana is a loss of coordination, of course, and depression, um, sometimes a slow heart rate, sometimes a fast heart rate, um, uh, excess salivation. Um, one of the most more typical and unusual symptoms is urinary incontinence um, and a really increasingly confused dog. Uh, with some of the newer products that have been designed into marijuana uh, and in, in some of the concentrated products like marijuana butter or, or maybe um, hashish or hashish oil, um, then you might see much more extreme symptoms that could in, even include seizures or more severe neurologic effects, even coma. Rarely death. It's not likely to cause death, but with some of these more concentrated products, that risk is increasing. Yeah, and is there treatment that's required, or you just sort of let it run its course? Well, there's not really any specific treatment. It's an excellent question. Um, 
it's generally a supportive treatment where a pet's hospitalized and given fluid therapy and products to block the absorption because it can take several days for this to completely be metabolized. And there is a process of marijuana being recirculated in the body um, that can be delayed by giving something like activated charcoal into the intestine to block reabsorption of it. Um, It's something that requires attention, but fortunately most pets recover. Robert, do you predict there is going to be a therapeutic use for THC in dogs or other animals, say for pain or anxiety? Well, certainly not anytime soon. Veterinarians are not allowed to prescribe marijuana, and because of that, they're not really likely to recommend it. And, and also, there's not really any research being done on it. And without any, any uh, information to guide us on dosage or safety, it's really unlikely that we're going to be recommending marijuana use in in dogs and cats anytime soon. And until the DEA relaxes the restrictions against veterinarians, it's you know it's virtually impossible for us to even suggest that. Yeah. And so let's move on to hemp as a health aid. There are at least two companies selling this. What is it, and what are the alleged benefits? Well, the alleged benefits are the same ones that are. Uh, alleged with marijuana in dogs, and it's largely uh, pain relief, anxiety relief. Um, But it again, those products, even though they're judged to be safer, I don't know that there's enough testing that really demonstrates that. But perhaps more importantly, I don't think there's enough research to demonstrate their effectiveness to justify using them at this point. Yeah, who knows what, what what the future may hold. But at this point, I'm not sure we have enough information to guide us on that. Are your clients asking you about it or, or buying it somehow? Occasionally. You know, it, that's a product that um, I don't believe requires any prescription. And certainly, we wouldn't be able to provide a prescription in any case. Right. Um, so it's it's not something that they would need to ask me about. I do get asked occasionally about marijuana use for chronic pain in dogs, um, and it's not something that we are at this point pursuing, unfortunately. Dr. Robert Reed, thank you so much. You're welcome. Peter, did you know that October was Adopt a Shelter Dog Month? No, I didn't know that. Yeah. Good idea, though. It's a great idea. And, of course, here on Animals Today, we always encourage and promote adopting and saving a life from a shelter, whether it's a dog or cat or any other animal, versus buying from a breeder. I mean, we we euthanize thousands, millions, millions. Still millions. Of do- still dogs and cats every year in our country's shelters. Why? Would you ever want to buy from a breeder when there's any kind, shape, size, color dog you would want in a shelter? Why would you ever buy from a breeder? Is there any justification, Peter? None at all. None at all. Less than none. And uh, it turns out that the shelter pet was just designated as the official California state pet. Very good. Very apropos and very timely. That's right. So we're very excited about that. And, uh, you know, some other states have state dogs, but not every state has a state dog. And in Alaska, the Alaskan Malamute, that's the official state dog. Uh, Massachusetts has a state dog. Do you know what that is? Boston Terrier. Boston Terrier. Very, very good. In uh, uh, Pennsylvania has the Great Dane. I don't know why that is the state dog of Pennsylvania. Okay. Uh, In Virginia, the American Foxhound. And in Wisconsin, the American Water Spaniel. Those are some state dogs. But most states do not have 
a state dog yet. So here is a, maybe an opportunity. Well, I like California having the shelter dog as its state dog. I think that's the best. We do have a California state animal. The grizzly bear is a California state animal. Why the grizzly bear? Do we still have grizzly bears in, in California? No, we haven't had one live grizzly bear since 1922 when okay. the last one was shot. Then about 30, more than 30 years later, the state decided that should be our official animal. I know it's on our flag. It's on our flag, but we have a dead animal as our official animal. That's not, not so good. California does have a state flower. The golden poppy is our flower. Okay. We got that. I guess that's nice. And we have uh, state soil. A state soil. Soil, dirt. The (laughs) San Joaquin soil filled with all those beautiful spores to infect your lungs. (laughs) That's our soil. Do other states have a state soil? They could only wish they had a state soil. Okay, thanks, Peter. Yeah. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to Animals Today. Almost every police force has a canine unit. And as you know, the dogs are very expensive to train and purchase, and the departments really rely upon these dogs in many situations. So what happens if a criminal or a suspect injures or kills one of these dogs while evading or resisting arrest? Because I bet it's not that rare of a situation. There's a recent story I'd like to look at to ask the question, what penalties are appropriate in these cases? With us is our legal analyst, former LA animal cruelty prosecutor, Bob Ferber. Hey, Bob. Hi, Lori. How you doing? And Peter's here, too. Hey, Lori. Hi, Peter. Hi, Bob. Nice to talk to you guys again. Bob, so there's this case where a police dog named Rocco was fatally stabbed by a man in 2014 when authorities tried to arrest him. Please summarize this case for us. Well, the, Lori, the case involved uh, a suspect, a defendant, who was wanted for uh, violating his probation. And when the sheriff's tried to arrest him, uh, he resisted. They uh, tried to taser him using a non-lethal weapon, uh, and he got away. Well, they were able to apprehend him at one point, and they were using a police dog to, they had him cornered in, uh, an, apartment, in an apartment building, in a basement. The police dog was sent in, he's an eight-year-old German Shepherd police dog, and, uh, sorry everybody, that's my dog. The uh, German Shepherd, he ended up stabbing the German Shepherd to death. Uh, he also, by the way, uh, he stabbed several police officers, resisted arrest, try, uh, sort of attacked the police officers. And so he had multiple charges of uh, killing the animal and also assault on several police officers. And in the end, a judge uh, gave him a sentence where he got approximately three and a half years for stabbing the 
the dog, and about three and a half years for each attack on the individual police officers for a total of about 17 and a half years jail time. And even though the article, the actual the article suggests, Laurie, from a headline that the defendant got 17 and a half years for killing the police dog, he actually got 17 and a half years for killing the police dog and all the other things being on probation and attacking the other police officers and injuring them. So yeah, Bob, he got about three and a half years for killing, stabbing the dog to death. Is that typical right. for cases like this? Well, uh, there are, this is not something that's um, that uncommon for a police dog to be injured. I, I, I would say it's not that common for them to be killed, but uh, it, I think most people can, if you can envision, uh, regardless of whether you're a nice person or not a nice person, when you are being attacked by uh, a police dog, uh, you know, the, the, the way to avoid being injured is to stop moving. Well, that's like people say, oh, if a bear comes up to you, stop moving. Well, that's easier said than done. And uh, in defense of, you know, people who've been attacked by police dogs, what they usually try to do is defend themselves, which makes it worse. They aggravate the, the dog has to try harder to control the person by biting more. And unfortunately, in certain situations, if the suspect is armed, they will stab or shoot the dog to death. Well, it does happen. You're right, Bob. In this article, the defendant claimed he stabbed the dog in self-defense. Can you claim self-defense while you're being arrested? Well, <laughs> actually, it's a very, very good question. If you have a scenario of a police officer that, let's say, is a very a bad police officer, and he's trying to, and you shoplift, and you come out of a store shoplifting, and you took $30 worth of stuff, and this police officer is not a good police officer and loses his temper and tries to kill you, uh, you can defend yourself. Uh, that's unlawful force, and so you can raise the issue of self-defense. And I, it's something that a jury would ultimately have to decide, uh, did the person in trying to, you know, in injuring or killing the dog, were they acting reasonably? In most cases, uh, my experience has been that it doesn't work that the police almost always announce that there's a police dog, that the, and they almost always give orders uh, and instructions to the person, stop moving, drop to the ground, don't fight with the dog. They tell the person, this is part of their training, uh, is to instruct the suspect how to respond and to be calm, just like if you have a suspect on the ground and you have three police officers trying to control that person and the person will not stop trying to get up, the police officers will keep screaming, stop struggling and we will let you get up. And if the person keeps struggling and, and, and fighting them, the cops are going to become more aggressive. Well, you can't then say I was defending myself. No, if it's a lawful arrest or the, or the dog is using the appropriate force that he was trained to do, then usually you can't raise self-defense. Bob, are the sentences for harming or killing police dogs more severe than, say, harming or killing my dog? Absolutely. I've had my own cases of, of abuse where people have attacked a police dog or injured it, and I've read stories around the country. Uh, there's no question that in most cases, judges are, are uh, inclined to give a much stiffer sentence 
when somebody injures or hurts a police dog. Hundreds of people attended the funeral for this dog, and uh, consequently, the former governor of Pennsylvania, Tom Corbett, signed what is called Rocco's Law, which increases the penalty for killing a police dog to up to 10 years. What do you think about that? I have mixed feelings about that. As as your your listeners probably know uh, or recall, I'm a big animal rescuer, and I have lots of dogs and cats. And uh, the first time I started encountering these cases where judges were more than willing to give very, very stiff sentences for killing a dog. My first reaction, a police dog, my first reaction was a little bit of being offended of, wait a minute, what about my dog? My dog was just as important to me as that dog was to that police officer, that uh, that this is my family pet, and I've had other cases where people's animals were abused, and I would struggle to get a stiff sentence of a couple of years in jail, and the judges would typically say, Bob, it's not a human, it's just a dog, you know, 30 days in jail or community service is more than enough. A police dog case would come in, oh, yes, we'll give three years in jail for killing a police dog. So I, you know, as far as being an animal owner, I don't see any difference between the the emotional distress I'm going to feel from losing my dog versus the loss of a police dog. On the other side of it, though, is there is a practical matter. Uh, my dogs have, I've not spent a lot of money on training, in fact, we probably should have, but my dogs are not trained, and governments will spend upwards of about $20,000 or more to have a, a, a dog, a police, to purchase a police dog, and it can be more than that. Uh, and there's a lot of time and effort involved in the police officer being trained to work with the police dog. So you could make the argument that if a police dog is killed, it's not just the harm to the the police officer who loved his police dog, but that it's costing the government a tremendous amount of money to replace that. And also, there's another very important factor. You're By injuring a police dog, you it's a defiant act against law enforcement. It's a defiant act against legitimate authority. And so there's no question that in the case of a police officer being injured, if I get punched in the nose by somebody on the street and a police officer gets punched in the nose when he's trying to arrest somebody, it's almost certain that the person's going to get a stiffer sentence for punching the police officer. And it's not because the police officer is individually very special, but that the act is a defiant act against law enforcement, and public policy is that we can't tolerate this. We mm-hmm. have to have a zero tolerance. So I, I would have to say, Peter, that in the end, as much as I kind of feel a little offended when I hear that a police dog is more protected by the system than my own dog, I understand it. Yeah. Whether or not your listeners agree with that, it's definitely something for a good dinner conversation. <laughs> okay. I guess I agree with you at this point. Okay, Bob. Bob Ferber, thanks for uh, enlightening us. Speak to you soon. I always love talking to you guys. And uh, remind your listeners, if they ever want to talk to somebody, uh, uh, they can always reach me at animallawyer at yahoo.com. Fantastic. Love you, Bob. Bye-bye. I want to share another one of the home modifications we have done in service of the happiness of our cats. Okay, Lori? Yes. And this is, uh, well, I wouldn't call it a home modification. It's a little bit more than that. Okay. So we, uh, 
we decided to design and build our own house. And so we're sitting down with the architect for the first time. I mean, his head must have exploded when he said, okay, we want you to design this house around a cat habitat. And what we had in mind was an enclosed uh, courtyard so they could have outdoor experience without the risk because we're not in favor of indoor outdoor cats right so ultimately we did indeed build a house and the focal point of this house is a courtyard covered on all four sides there's a little kitty door that goes to the inside that we control we open and close that when we want them to be there and uh, we've uh, decorated it over the years and there's cat trees out there and a little bit of fake grass but here's the most important part that really alleviates our worry we topped the whole thing with this bird netting so there is a very uh, unobtrusive uh, but pretty tough nylon mesh that covers this whole space and it's a couple hundred square feet so it's a nice space boy if you are a cat this you are doing okay if you get to experience this space and this is to prevent any of the unwanted visitors coming down like the raptors we have hawks where we live and uh, they are known to pick up rabbits and uh, small animals and we don't want to get involved in that and even owls even owls can oh that's right the owls are, are definitely around and uh Unfortunately, the cats do encounter little lizards there once in a while, and they do hunt them and present them as half-dead presents to us. Not that rarely, but I guess that's uh, the life of a cat. Yeah, I guess I don't appreciate the presents they give me now and then. So that is the mother of all cat modifications, wouldn't you say? We also have real grass out there. We discovered the cats love eating real grass. Like this tall desert grass variety, right? Right. Right, not just like a lawn. the show. Lori, so many interesting products have invaded our universe, haven't they? It's been fun. It has been fun. It's work. I mean, we want to give them a good trial, right? The uh, dogs and cats are participating. So where do you want to start? Okay. How about with a couple dog toys? Okay. So we've been told numerous times in the past by veterinarians that you shouldn't give your dog any sort of toy or chew, which you cannot indent with your fingernail, right? Like an ice cube or these rock hard toys that you sometimes see. Yeah. If you can't indent it with your fingernail, then you shouldn't give it to your dog. Toys that are just too hard can cause teeth to fracture and subsequent infections and a whole host of dental health problems. So like us, if you have a high energy dog who likes to chew or play hard, you got to find the perfect toy. And of course, you also don't want him or her tearing up something too soft and then facing the risk of your dog ingesting some part of the toy like the squeaker or the fabric, um, which obviously can cause choking or obstruction or worse. So anyway, we are always on the lookout for perfect dog toys that are durable enough and can't be destroyed in minutes, not dangerous to their health or damaging to their teeth, and that you can stick in the dishwasher since they often get so slimy and dirty. You want it all, don't you? I do want it all. And I've always been a fan of the Kong toys. You know those, Peter? Yep, yep. We put unsalted peanut butter in them and freeze them, and our dogs love licking away at the peanut butter out of a very durable, almost indestructible 
toy. Well, another line of toys we discovered is the Zogoflex dog toys by Westpod Design. Perfect durability. They can bounce. They float. And I love that they can be put in the dishwasher. So the ones that we demoed were the Quizzle is an award-winning toy designed to keep dogs away from shoes. Tux is a super durable treat dog toy with room for tasty treasures. And... And Jive is the Uber ball with a groove, which makes for a wacky bounce. And these are colorful, sort of funky, unique shapes with grooves. And they're just like you said, the right firmness. Right. Okay. They're from Westpaw Design. We like them. Yeah, we sure do. If your dogs are the dogs that really like to scarf their food down very fast, maybe you've been told that you should slow them down, you know? And we were not aware of this until... A couple of years ago, I'd say, and we just said, okay, dogs eat fast, but we learned maybe they can slow them down a little bit. It might be a little healthier for them, right? Right. So we have uh, purchased and acquired a, a series of, they call them slow feeders, or I've heard the term puppy feeder. And these are, these are bowls or, or vessels that have a variety of ridges or protrusions, and the food goes in the nooks and crannies, and, and the dogs have to work to get their food in changes the process from 30 seconds maybe to three or four minutes it's a vastly different experience and seems a lot more reasonable to me we love them there's a variety of them and i would just go check them out and see what you like and give it a try slow feeders yeah i think our dogs find them interesting and stimulating yeah that's the other element that people talk about maybe it the challenge is good for the mental stimulation i don't know and like you said it's much healthier our dogs used to eat their meals within seconds seconds yes maybe minute the most And this slows them down at least five to six minutes, right, Peter? Well, three to four, I'll say. Okay. Okay. So Peter and I are always interested in learning about safe and effective ways to stimulate your dog's mind and body. We recently demoed an interesting training and behavioral tool, and that is the dog zone. The dog zone is from Starmark. It's an elevated bed that makes boundary training easy and fun. The frame is made from durable one-inch hardened steel tubing with ballistic nylon fabric stretched across it. Assembles easily and without the need for tools. It can also be easily disassembled for easy carrying or washing, and it is washing machine and dryer safe. The dog zone is available in three sizes and different colors. It includes pro training clicker deluxe, carry bag, and training DVD. Starmark's goal is simply keeping pets happy in their homes by improving relationships with their owners. And I was the one who got to put this together and work with it a little bit. And I'll tell you what you just described there is 100% true. It was not that hard to put together. Didn't require any tools. I'm really not that mechanically inclined. But you end up with a very taut fabric across the frame. And it's it's sturdy. And it's designed to be a training system. And it comes with the clicker and with the DVD to tell you how to clicker train your dog to put them in their place. And maybe someday we'll really try that out. In the meanwhile, um, our dogs seem to use it as as a bed, like a cot. And it's great for that, too. And so if you want to just keep it outside and just hose it down once in a while, it's maybe better than a plush bed for certain applications. We like it. Lori, we also had a chance to try out a variety of dog beds this season, and you've got one that we liked. Yes, Messy Mutt's line of pet beds uses Everfresh, which is patented probiotic technology to provide natural continuous odor control. It's cozy and a plush bed, and it's also a perfect place for your messy mutts to chase their dreams, and it's beautiful. Chase their dreams. Okay. 
Who writes this stuff? What can I say? I'm just reading what they gave me here. <laughs> to chase their dreams and its beautiful addition to your living space. It actually is, it's, it's pretty attractive, it isn't is it? It's an attractive bed. And it comes vacuum sealed. So we got a thin pack in a, in a neat plastic hermetically sealed package and I just cut it open and it expands and it assumes its shape. It's got bolsters. It's got a nice plush bed. Yeah, it's constructed using heavy duty upholstery that, which I like, is removable for easy cleaning in the washing machine. So they are available in bolster, like you said, and standard styles and a range of sizes as well as a variety of luxurious fabrics and colors. Yes, and our cat likes it too. Our cat especially likes them. Okay, another bed we like this year comes from Beco Pets, B-E-C-O Pets. This is a very interesting company. They're very eco-friendly and uh, the bed that they have is called the Beco bed. It's like a donut shape. It is also quite durable. It's oval. It comes in sizes and it's filled with a springy filler that's made out of recycled shredded up plastic bottles. And it's pretty spongy. It's quite, quite nice. There's nothing second rate about this product line. The sides of the bed are nice and durable, and it's very attractive. The dogs like this a lot, too. And our cats like them, too. Yeah, that's right, Lori. Good product. And Peter, doesn't Pico have a great line of cat bowls? And dog bowls. Yeah. And these are made of bamboo and rice husk, and they are sustainable and natural. And they've got an interesting shape, really pretty colors. The edge of them is sort of an undulating curve that is quite attractive. Our cats and dogs both use them, and it's also a really interesting company based in the United Kingdom. Okay, Lori, well, we've run out of time. We definitely have more products we want to share with listeners. So I'm Peter Spiegel. And I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Today tip of the day has to do with kittens. If you find a litter of newborn or very young kittens, do not assume the mother has abandoned them. If they are not clearly in distress, their mother is probably hunting for food or in the process of moving them. She may even be hiding nearby until you've gone. You should leave the kittens alone for a couple hours and stay far enough away so the mother feels safe to return. If she doesn't return and you're absolutely convinced they are abandoned, contact your local cat rescue group and ask for advice about your particular situation. And that is your Animals Today tip of the day.